Personal growth is a big business. Lots of people really want to improve their lives, don't they? To be a better person, to have better attitudes in certain areas, to be more positive perhaps, to achieve more success, to be more fulfilled in life, maybe to stop doing the things that I've somehow become addicted to. Whether you go to bookstores, if you like real books, or whether you look online, you don't have to look very far to find all kinds of experts and gurus who will tell you what you need to do to grow as a person. One uh, self-help guru that I've come across a few times online uh, wrote these words after thinking about the culture that we live in. This is an American guy, but I'm sure some of these things apply in the UK as well. He says this, the more I travel and the more I interact with people from other cultures, the more I see just how stressed many people are. There is a lot of freedom here, but also much tension. With many people having beliefs like, I'm not good enough, I need more, and I have to work harder. People here put a lot of effort into things that don't make them happy and then they escape into addictions like watching tons of TV. We have an abundance but not enough appreciation. There is an addictive quality to this more, more, more obsession. People don't realise that if they can't appreciate a sip, they won't appreciate a gulp either. I thought that was a great quote. This guy who wrote this is not a Christian, but I think he puts his finger on a lot of spiritual issues in the stuff that he's written there. The desire for freedom, but looking in the wrong places to find it. Wanting happiness, but constantly feeling stressed out. Having more stuff, but not necessarily being content the constant feeling of being inferior and being driven to achieve things to obtain happiness I think what's interesting with with this guy uh, and with many people who strive for these things is that they very often define themselves have you heard this phrase I'm spiritual but not religious have you heard that phrase people very often will say that The guy who wrote those words that I read to you, he describes himself as spiritual but not religious. And he actually cites Jesus as his greatest spiritual mentor. Let me read to you again. This is is what the same guy says. Jesus is like my spiritual battery. My ultimate role model for personal growth. Now, I'm not referring to the cryptic figure inaccurately reported in the various versions of the human-scribed, politically-motivated Bible. No, I mean the genuine, ascended master who still serves us today from the non-physical realms. I'm not sure how he knows Jesus if he's not getting his information from the Bible. Spiritual, but not religious. That kind of idea 
is not uncommon. What he's really saying there is, you don't want to believe the Bible. That's been written by men for political reasons. You can't trust it. What you really need to do is work out your own spirituality. My point is here is not to critique him, but I'm, I'm, I'm just introducing the idea that people long for growth, don't they? People in our culture may not go to church, but they are very spiritually hungry. People are unsettled and confused about how to be a better person. And I want to start there because I I believe with all my heart that God has answers for us and that his word is actually not political or manipulative or controlling but rather it's deeply, profoundly relevant to these kind of issues. If you've been here over the last few weeks you'll know that we're working through Ephesians chapter 1. We're entitled our series Captivated. We're up to session number five and we've reached verse four, so we're not going that quick. Um, But we've considered, first of all, the amazing truths packed into verse three, where Paul writes that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The, The God of the Bible is not a God to mistrust. He is the God who is to be forever praised for his generosity. He is fundamentally generous, not crooked. And next, we were asking the question, if if God gives us all these spiritual blessings, how do we get connected to them? And we saw from the beginning of verse 4 that the answer to that question ultimately is that it is always God who takes the initiative. We didn't choose him. Rather, he chose us. And here is the ultimate unconditional love that is effective in driving out our worst and most neurotic fears now we're moving on and we're beginning to ask okay what is the detail what are these blessings that God gives to us and last week we identified three separate ideas if you were here first of all Christianity is something that works Uh, secondly Christianity is something that brings us in And thirdly, Christianity is something that can handle and deal with our failure. So when we ask questions like, can I really do it? Or will I really fit in? Or how can I recover when I mess up? The answer to all of those questions is a resounding yes because of the blessings that God has given to us in Christ. My, my, my thesis, I suppose, is on the basis of God's word here, these are not my words, is that Christianity has resources within it that can inspire real change, that can really bring us in from outside in the cold, and they can handle and deal with the problem of our human guilt. So they were the three things. Today we're thinking about the first one, and the next two weeks we'll think about the other two. So our question today is, can I really do it? This is a question of competence and ability. This is a question about personal growth. 
can I, can we really change, grow, become better people? And so we're in verse 4, session 5, verse 4. Just uh, look again with me, Paul writes, For he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. I want you to notice again, right at the start, that God didn't choose us because we have changed. He didn't choose us because of something that we had already done. No, it is the other way around. God has chosen us with a purpose and design in mind. He has a goal for us. This is really about God seeing what we were and what we would have been and choosing to make us into something else, something far better. God knew that we were not what we should be and he sets out to put that right. And this, this is the supernatural part of the gospel, isn't it? We, we are spiritually hungry. Many people in our culture are spiritually hungry. But we don't come to God. Unless God changes our desires, we will never move towards him. And this is the great difference, isn't it, between the guy there who wrote, self-help movements will always inspire us to look inside, whereas the gospel is more like God help that encourages to look outside of ourselves to one who has great things in store for us. Now, just bear with me for a couple of minutes because I just want to I just want to get right what this verse actually says. Um, I don't do this very often. Most of the time, our English translations are, are very good and I don't want to undermine your confidence when you're reading at the Bible at home and you, th- and you read the Bible and think, does it really mean this? Most of the time, um, our, our versions of the Bible are very good. But this is one of those rare times when I think our English translation here in the NIV could be better Some translations in the English are better, but the NIV is not quite conveying the right sense here. So, just look with me at verse 4. The holy and blameless part is fine. We'll come back to that. Then, Paul says here in the NIV, holy and blameless in his side. I think that is okay. Um, But it could be better. I think in his sight conveys the idea of being watched, doesn't it? And the word really means in the presence of. So I'm going to suggest that we use the little phrase before him. Um, The idea behind this phrase is relational, not a spy checking up on you. Okay? Holy and blameless before him or in his presence or with him. It's a relational idea but they're the easy parts the next bit is there's two little words at the end of verse 4 in love and remember I said to you at the very beginning when we looked at these verses that this is one log sentence with no punctuation in it and so commentators have been debating for a long time should those two little words in love go at the end of verse 4 and apply to what was already gone or should they go as the NIV has it here 
at the beginning of verse 5? It's not an easy question to answer. I'm not going to spend all day talking about that. It's a very technical question. The vast majority of the commentaries that I looked at say that those two words go with verse 4 and that the NIV here is wrong. Um, and, and the commentators that say that are generally the ones that get into the most detail, so I won't bore you with the details. We want to know, I can tell you afterwards. So this is one of those rare times where I think the NIV has it slightly wrong. And this verse should therefore read, God has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. And there's no full stop, but that's where you would have an imaginary full stop. Does that make sense? The reason I've taken the time to explain that is because that helps us to see two different things that are on Paul's mind here. He is talking here about two things. On the one hand, moral health. And on the other hand, authentic relationship. Can you see the way that I've separated those? Moral health and authentic relationship. The reason that's important is that we always seem to stray to one side or the other. We either emphasise very high ethical standards, but have no love. And that makes us legalistic and self-righteous and frankly, a little bit smug. I think it's one of the reasons why churches can often put people off. We emphasise high standards, but we don't love people. The love that underpins the whole gospel gets lost in our arguments. Or we go to the other extreme and we emphasise the love, but we lose the ethical standards. And in this case, we become very woolly and cuddly and super tolerant. But we have no basis anymore to discern whether something is right or wrong and that is another reason why people don't come to church because I think often people who are not believers can see far more than we do often that we've got nothing relevant to say because we've lost the basis of truth actually both extremes miss the nuance of the Christian gospel don't they what we need is both truth and love we need ethical standards and we need authentic relationships. It's never one or the other. We need both of those things together. This is one reason why I love the Bible. It constantly brings us back from the extremes that we lurch off into, into the more complex reality that life actually is. It's an evidence of it being God's word rather than man-made because our human nature is very prone to lurch off, isn't it? into extremes so what we're going to do is take these one at a time the left hand side moral health we'll spend more time on that and then we'll have a little think about how holiness is relational so let's um, let's think about the words holy and blameless the words holy and blameless are obviously bible words but what do they mean? The last thing I want you to hear is blah, 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 religious words. Holy and blameless, blah, blah, blah. The, 
well, I, I don't want you to hear blah, blah, blah. These concepts are rich, powerful, profound concepts. And I hope that you don't hear this verse and think, why are we going through Ephesians so slow? God chose me to be holy and blameless. Big deal. I, I, let's move on to something more exciting. I, I actually suspect that this is what we all want, actually, deep down in our hearts. We, we need this more than we need anything else, more than cash, more than health more than all the other things we might think we need, this is what we need more than anything else. So these, they're, they're, these are important concepts. They're holy and blameless. These two words often come as a pair. And the reason for that is that one is positive and the other is negative. Holy is a positive word. So on the one hand, if you have holiness, you've got something good. That, that's like a positive. Something good is present. Blameless is the absence of something, isn't it? So there's something negative. You are without blame. No one can lay a charge at your door. There's nothing wrong with you. There's no defect or blemish or flaw. So something good is present and nothing bad is present. One's positive, one's negative. They come together as a pair. Uh, that's important in itself because often we have a tendency, don't we, to reduce morality to the absence of really bad things. We, we, people in our culture, we might even say, I've never killed anyone. I try not to steal or tell lies. I'm quite a moral person. What we mean is, I haven't done something really bad, but morality biblically, is not just not sinning. That's a horrible double negative, isn't it? You know what I mean. It's not just not sinning. But it is also the presence of everything that is really good. We say, I'm not that bad. God says, that's easy. Hello? Come in. Someone's a bit poorly. We, we say, I'm not that bad. God says, that's easy. You just don't want people to think badly of you. My question is, are you truly good? That is a different standard altogether. I want to give you three things just to try and flesh out this pair of words, holy and blameless. I was thinking during the week how to do this. Let, let me try and think of it, first of all, by applying these ideas to products that you might buy. You all like shopping. Maybe the men don't. Some of you don't like shopping. But if you're looking for a product, here, here's three things. Number one, exceptional quality. One of the ideas behind the biblical word holiness is the idea of unique quality. This is the idea of something being special set apart from the mundane and ordinary. It, it, it's a word that represents something that is kind of in a class of its own. What, what, what products do you know that, that you might think of buying or aspire to buying, maybe we couldn't afford products like this, that would make you stop and go, oh, 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 that is something really special. That's not a rhetorical question. What, what kind of products? 
would make you go, oh, oh, that's nice. A Rolls Royce, okay. For some people that would be the pinnacle, wouldn't it? A Rolls Royce. What else? Something that you would go, oh, that's, that's. Well, you're obviously not shoppers, are you? A 1969 Fender Strat. It's a guitar, is it? Okay. I thought that was a car then for a minute. <laughs> oh, I knew a Fender was a guitar. Okay. Maybe, did someone say something else then, or was that just a giggle? That was a giggle, wasn't it? Probably would have cost as much a car. So we're talking here about the difference between a common old banger of a car and a really cool, high-performance sports car. This is the difference between my mum's own brand and the high-end, organic, just-for-you, special (coughs) brand. That's probably the same stuff, but you pay £2.50 more for it. When you see premier quality, you talk about it in hushed tones, don't you? There's a kind of reverence in handling something that is unique and special. That's, that's the first thing. Secondly, what, what about this idea? Harmonious function. Another thought here is the idea of something that just works really well. You know, the kind of product that is just effortless to use. It's been really well designed. Everything fits. There's no bits hanging off. Everything's in its rightful place. It works as it should, seamlessly, naturally, intuitively, perfectly. There's nothing in it that jars or grates. It isn't dysfunctional or broken or patched up with a bit of sellotape. It just works. I'm an engineer. I I like this idea. This This is the way products should be, isn't it? Can you, th- can you think of products like this? What kind of things would spring to mind if you were thinking of... Oh, people who talk about iPhones. Oh, they worship them, don't they? I've lost mine. I've I just realised it's not in my pocket just before I got up to speak. So I've left it somewhere if you find it here anyway. Uh, people look at Apple products, don't they? And they, and they think, oh, that's special. It's so beautifully designed. Other people hate it, but... Harmonious function. Here's another idea. Perfect health. Um, The third idea here is the idea of wholesomeness. Here I'm thinking of the idea of something not just looking good, but actually being good. Very often when you go to shops and you buy a product the thing looks nice and you get it home and think, oh man, that's a disappointment. You open the packet and it just seems a bit shallow. And, they, and, you, and you think, you know, it's not worth it, is it? Trade descriptions. I mean, the picture on the box looks so much better than what was in it. It kind of looks good, but it isn't really good. When, when I say wholesome, what I'm thinking of is a nice, big, fat, red, juicy apple that has no maggots in it. 
it's not just nice and shiny on the outside and you bite into it and it's rotten. It's as good inside as it looks on the outside. Maybe a good word would be consistent. It isn't trying to be one thing, but it's actually another. So when you see something that is uniquely special, smooth and seamless, beautiful inside and out, you're getting very near to the idea that these words are conveying holy and blameless. I think we can understand those concepts in relation to product, but take those ideas and apply them to the realm of morality and ethics. Think about someone's character, life, attitudes, behaviour. What the Bible is talking about here is Premier League morality. Can I say that? Premier League morality. It is uniquely special. It is beautifully harmonious and utterly consistent. Now, we're in a position to say some important things about the words holy and blameless. The first thing I want to say is that this is what God is like. This is who God is. This is God's essential being. He is utterly unique and special in his moral excellence. There's nothing dysfunctional about him. Everything within God hangs together perfectly and works like it was always meant to work. There is nothing in him that jars or grates. And he's perfectly consistent both inside and out. He isn't sinister or full of pretense. He has no two-faced element to his character. He is wholesome and healthy and good. When we speak about God, we should speak about him in hushed tones. He's special. That, that is the essence of the word holy. Yesterday I came across a blog. I, I'd already written my talk for um, today, but I came across a blog on the Gospel Coalition website that was about this. There's a guy in the States who's been lecturing in a seminary, a Christian seminary, and he's been teaching for the last 10 years the book of Leviticus. Can you imagine that? His job has been to teach the book of Leviticus. If you know anything about the Bible, the book of Leviticus is one of the first five books of the Bible. I think when Christians talk about reading the Bible, they start in Genesis and then miss out the next three and then move on to more interesting books. Leviticus is a book that deals with Jewish laws. Sacrifice it. It's a very bloody book. It's a very technical and detailed book. It is really the law the ceremonial law for a nation, the Israelites. This writer said on this blog that four things happened to him as he taught Leviticus for ten years. First of all, he said, it made me hunger for God's holiness more frequently. Secondly, it made me fear God more greatly. By that he means respect, not slavish fear. Thirdly, he began to love Jesus more deeply 
And fourthly, it actually made him love his neighbour more fully. I wish we had more time to look at this, but the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system and detailed laws was to teach his people that God was Waitrose, not Aldi. Can I say it like that? That is the whole point of Leviticus. To teach his people, I am not cheap. I am the Lord, your God. I am in a class all by myself. There were two priests in the book of Leviticus who came to offer sacrifice that God had not commanded. Now imagine if you barged into the presence of a human king uninvited, you'd be hauled off to prison or worse. These guys saunter into the most holy of holies in the tabernacle, wandering into God's presence. And the Lord guards his honour by sending fire to consume the blasphemous priest. We read it and it shocks us. And God in Leviticus chapter 10, I think it is, gives them this warning. Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. What is God saying? He is saying to the whole nation, if you do not set me apart by your actions as the God who is worthy of reverence, I'll even use the death of these priests as an opportunity to remind you that I am indeed the God who is to be revered over all other gods. I wanted to turn you to another passage in the New Testament. Um, you, you perhaps don't need to turn to it. In 1 John, um, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. This is a disciple of Jesus writing many years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And this is what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The words are simple, but the concept there is profound, isn't it? This is the message we've heard. We've met Jesus And this is the message we've heard from him. And this is what we want to tell you. God is different. There's no shadow in him. He is, in his character, pure, perfect, moral class. He is healthy and utterly right. You know when Jesus in the Gospels taught John and these same disciples to pray... He taught them what we now know as the Lord's Prayer. What's the first line? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Have you ever wondered about that word, hallowed? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Literally, that means, God, let your name be set apart on the biggest pedestal you could find. It really means, God, there is no one like you. You are in a class all by yourself. Utterly brilliant, hallowed, set apart, unique, special. 
incomparable, awesome. You, God, are holy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Secondly, try and get your heads around this. God wants us to be like him. Can you see something of the power in these words now? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless. Before him in love. This is what God is like. And this, this friends, is what he wants you to be like. God has determined so to bless you that in the end you would be just like he is. He desires that your life would have about it a unique quality, that it would be harmonious and fruitful and wholesome and healthy. He has in his heart the highest possible good in store for you. The word holy is not a religious word to be scared of. It it is the highest good you can imagine. And God has chosen you for this. Does that make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? Paul says it again in this letter. This is an aside really. Just flick a few pages forward to Ephesians chapter 5. This is the greatest love story the world has ever seen. In chapter 5, Paul is speaking about marriage. He speaks about Jesus being the great bridegroom and the church, Christian people, being the bride. And in chapter 5, he says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but what? Holy and blameless. This is God's plan. What I love about this is that it says something about God's nature, doesn't it? God is so generous that he wants to give you everything that he is. Sometimes in life, I think we often say to ourselves, I'll just, I'll just hold a little bit back. I'm, I'm not really sure that I can give everything. I'll just hold a little bit back. It'll give me some power. We were reminiscing at work the other day. I'm not going to name names here. We, we were reminiscing about old staff who have left. Someone asked the question, how many staff has this business employed since it started who don't, know, who don't work there now? And we counted 104 people who had been through the doors moved on I didn't think it was that many we were reminiscing about old staff and some funny stories and in the conversation we realised there was one guy who who always used to say knowledge is power don't tell them anything (laughs) that was his attitude if you tell them too much they'll have you over a barrel always hold something back that was his advice so even if he knew the answer to the question, he'd give you 50% of it and expect you to wear the rest of it all yourself. Because if he gave you too much, he thought, they won't need you. They won't need you. 
he left of his own accord in the end so he must have thought he didn't need us but um, he, he kept something back because he meant he would always have power listen, even God is not like that he doesn't need to keep us under the thumb to control us he calls us to be everything that he is Paul says it here he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ he's not a control freak he's a giver do you recall what happened in the garden of Eden the serpent, the devil comes to Eve and Adam and says God knows that when you eat that fruit on that tree you'll be just like him you know what that means don't you he's holding back on you He's holding back on you. He knows that when you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. He doesn't want you to be just like him. You know you want to. You can go on. Eve looks up. It's, it's a poxy piece of fruit. The devil is a liar. And there are not adequate words to betray his crime in that moment when he represents the one who is holy the one who is the fountain of goodness as a selfish, grabbing, tyrannical control freak. More than that, he does it to get his own way. The devil lies to them about God to bring them into slavery. He accuses God of being manipulative. manipulative. Put my teeth back in. When all the while, he is the scheming deceiver. God is holding nothing back. Thirdly, I, I want you to see clearly that this means that God's design from the very beginning is to reverse the effects of the fall of humankind. When humans fell into sin, it destroyed everything. The unique specialness of humans was tainted. The harmony between humans was destroyed. Our health and wholesomeness defiled. When we rebelled against God, everything became dysfunctional. Nothing really works like it should anymore. And we still hunger for this deep down. Sometimes we get close to it, but more often than not, we know confusion, dissatisfaction, shame, broken relationships, in the end, even death. This, can, I, can I say this? This verse 4 here, in Ephesians, this is a holy God saying, Geronimo! Can I say that? This, look at what it says. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be What? Dysfunctional? No. Holy and blameless. This is God putting the fall into reverse gear and saying, we're, whoa, we're going to recover all of that and put what's broken right. This is God saying, Geronimo, wait for me. I'm coming and I'm coming to fix what you've done. One writer says, the divine purpose in our election or God's choice was not simply to repair the damage done by sin, but also to fulfil God's original intention for humankind, 
namely to create for himself a people perfectly conformed to the likeness of his son Jesus who he loves oh man time's racing on I don't care let's go to Romans Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 page 1135 Um, this is kind of a parallel passage same writer Paul this time writing to Rome what does he say Romans chapter 8 verse 29 some of you ahead of me for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us what has God predestined us to he's he's aiming to make us like Jesus to take dysfunctional rebels and make them healthy and whole like Jesus is is that not the most incredible thing you've ever heard here is God coming to make order out of chaos to bring light where there's darkness health where there's sickness to heal relationships that have gone wrong holiness is not a boring religious word it means being right like God is it means being glad to be whole and to work properly where holiness reigns there's peace and gladness and health when things go wrong and people are hurting holiness has gone out of the window fourthly there's a challenge here given everything that we've said and I think most of that is super positive my fourth point here is that if you're not growing towards this in some way in your own life there, there is the possibility that you're not yet a Christian let me read to you a quote from one preacher if your life is characterised by a pattern of conscious sin you are very likely not a Christian if some of your most cherished thoughts are hatreds if you are determined not to forgive you may not be a true believer if you are a committed materialist who finds that your greatest joys are self-indulgence clothing your body with lavish outfits having all your waking thoughts devoted to house car, clothing and comfort you may not yet be a Christian if you are a sensualist who is addicted to pornography if your mind is a 24 hour bordello and you think it's okay you may very well not be a Christian regardless of how many times you have gone forward and mouthed the evangelical shibboleths whatever they are election ultimately results in holiness but the process begins now are you concerned for holiness are you growing in holiness 
Well, there's one side of it. We need to rattle on. We'll, we won't be as long with the second half, but let's just finish off. Paul said on the right hand side, holy and blameless, moral health, before him in love. This is about authentic relationship. This is now relational rather than ethical. So, in theory, at least, it is possible to be a moral person but not have this. And that's because, in a way, being moral is about not doing something, whereas true biblical holiness is about loving God. So I've just got three quick points, the the only quick ones. First of all, I want to say this, love is the opposite of being enemies. I think Paul here is alluding to something in the Old Testament. Paul was a Jew, and um, when God called the father of the Jews, Abraham, the Bible tells us this in Genesis 17, we don't need to turn to it, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to Abraham, walk before me, and be blameless odd thing for God to say imagine that imagine God coming to your house and saying hey let's go for a walk let's go for a walk God came to Abraham and said walk before me and be blameless the point is no one goes for a walk with their enemy you you, you think of the person that you maybe in your life that you don't get on with they came and knocked on your door and said, come on, let's go for a walk. You get lost. <laughs> you don't go for a walk with your enemy. Who do you go for a walk with? Your friends. Love is the opposite of being enemies. Secondly, love sums up all of God's other laws. There's a lot of commandments in the Bible. But every one of them is summed up by one. And it's from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. God said to his people, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The whole law of God is summed up by love. There's a lot more we could say about that. Let's say... Just give you a third point. I want to suggest to you that true holiness therefore always expresses itself in love. A true Christian is not someone who is frightened of God, but someone who loves him. A Christian person is someone who delights in God, who treasures him, who loves him, who hungers and thirsts for more of him. A Christian person is someone who deep down in their heart wants nothing more than to be more like him. It isn't a chore. It isn't the same as doing your duty. It's not even about outward respectability. In the end, it is being friends with God. We'll never ever be perfect in this life, but the process begins now. The seeds of God's own holy nature are born within you. 
this is the life you're called to. This is the trajectory of your life. This is what God has chosen you for. This is your destiny in the end. The fall of mankind makes us hate God. In our natural condition, we don't like him. We don't want him. I think we often rebel against the very idea of God. Part of this is that we know we're separated from him and can't really face him. It's like a recoil, reflex. I don't know, think of it this way. Maybe if someone comes into here who's like ten times better looking than you are, maybe you don't notice. Or maybe you go, I'm just going to stand over here instead. Maybe you're at work and someone joins your team who is ten times better than you are at doing that job. What's your reaction inside? You would never say it. I hate them. So much better than me. You make me look stupid. The reason for that is that we love to be the centre and we don't like it when we're not the centre. But imagine if God walks in. We've had it then. We feel empty and unclean and all wrong. We hate it and it makes us hate him. This is why the Bible emphasises repentance at this point, isn't it? That God has come and laid down his arms so that we can lay down our arms too. God has not chosen us because we were like him. He has chosen us because we were the exact opposite. This is grace. Undeserved kindness. When we were his enemies, he loved us. While we were still sinners, he loved us. When we were lost, he had his eye on us and was coming to find us. When we were shaking our puny little fists at him, he was planning our homecoming. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, I don't want to give you rules to keep. I want to give you such a sense of God that you can't help but fall in love with him. I want you to see his unique reality, his perfect harmony, his thorough wholesomeness so that you would run to him and let him fill you with the same things. Can I ask you a question? We're drawing to a close, we're nearly done. I want to ask you this question today. Is your faith personal or just theoretical is, is your faith something that is just going around in your head or is it a relationship with God through Christ do you, do you have in your heart personal dealings with this God do you know him not about him do you know him love him long for him Maybe there are some of you here and you've never seen Christianity in those kind of terms and maybe God this afternoon is saying to you, like he said to Abraham, come on, let's go for a walk. If he is, grab your coat and go with him. Others of you may feel that you knew this once 
but actually it's a long time since you really confided in him. You, you can say all the right things, you know all the right behaviours to make it look like you're walking with God, but something has got you and you haven't been on speaking terms with God for a long time. It is a long time since you and he, if you like, have been for a walk. Maybe this afternoon he's calling you to put that right and find his forgiveness and goodness and grace afresh. Let me draw to a close with a final comment. We're asking the question, can I really grow? Can I change? Can I develop? My answer from this passage is that where there is grace, there will always be growth. Here's the key, here's the key question. I wish you had more time to spell on this, but here's the key question. Do you, do you think in your life that you are loved because you are good? Or are you good because you're loved? It's a world of difference. Every religion in the world says try harder to do this stuff and maybe God will love you. The Bible on the other hand says stop trying to earn it and let God be who God is. When you hear grace like that it automatically makes you holy. When you see that God loves you when you're bad somehow it causes your heart to leap up to him and suddenly you find that you want to be good like he's good when you begin to realise that you're not saved by doing good things the strange thing is that you then start to do them the Christian gospel sounds like a shocking scandalous thing and if you, ha- if you, if you haven't heard it that way maybe you've never heard it before The key to personal growth is to get off the treadmill of self-effort and receive the grace of God because it will set you free to love him instead of fearing him. Then your whole life will be worship. He doesn't want your duty. He wants you. On the sheet there I've put a final verse. Let's read this as we close. 1 John chapter 3. John writes, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope within him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen.